morning, everybody. It is uh, good. Pastor Jeff just preached half my sermon in his prayer, so we should be out of here pretty quick. Uh, yeah, just go ahead and give me 15 minutes. We're going to do a Wednesday night service tonight. Uh, no, so, uh, well, he said it. This, uh, this is an odd Sunday, usually within ministry, because you, you lead into Advent, you hit Christmas, and then you have your eyes, like we've, you've done all this planning, like 2024, right? It's going to be this. This is where we're going. We're all excited. And then there's just this one Sunday in between. You're like, what do we do with this? It's dangerous, by the way, to tell a pastor, preach on whatever you want. It's dangerous. Super dangerous. Uh, so what I felt just kind of pressed into uh, is to try and find a way, uh, for those of you who don't know where we're going next, uh, next week, we're going to start the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts and how God takes these, these 11 men and begins to build his church off of these 11 men through this power of the gospel. So we're going to look at the building of the church, and we're walking away from a beautiful story of restoration in the story of Ruth, right? We took the last four weeks, and we kind of unpacked this story of how God just was moving. And I don't know if you guys noticed while we spent those four weeks in there, but nowhere in the book of Ruth do we get a statement and then the Lord did, right? The only thing we know that the Lord did was we heard through Ruth that the Lord had visited his people. That's all we heard about the Lord actually doing physically inside the book of Ruth. And yet, we were able to week after week see God actually doing things, that he was working and he was moving. And so as we walk away from this, this beautiful narrative of God's restoration, and we look forward to jumping into the book of Acts, and we look at what it looks like for the church to be built, and, and kind of how we uh, as a church should kind of mimic that, grow on that, continue on that. I just felt this call to see how we might be able to build a bridge from Ruth to the book of Acts. Isn't that exciting? That's all. I'm going to go now, guys. Read your Bible. No. So what we're going to do, we're going to hang out in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, pull those out. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. We'll start at Matthew chapter 1. Um, if you've got your own Bible, I can't tell you what page number it is. If you have the one, if you're using one of ours, I believe it should be 807. Don't quote me on that. It washed off my hand. I think it was 807. But real quick, while you're turning there, let me just do a real quick recap of the story of Ruth. The main things, just in case you missed it, right? We looked at this story of Ruth and we saw God working out restoration and redemption for a woman named Ruth and a woman named Naomi. Now we saw this restoration, right? We watched Naomi leave Bethlehem, leave Jerusalem, leave her hometown to go into Moab, lives there, loses her husband, loses her sons, ends up with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. She hears that God's visited uh, Israel. She wants to go back because it's really all that she can do. She's got nothing else for her. In that time, if you were a widow, you were just at the whim of whatever the uh, society would do for you. And being that she's not a Moabite, she decides, I'm going to go back. And we watch her come back, and we watch Ruth uh, live into this. Ruth would not leave her side. Ruth said, I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. And we see this this faith, this young faith of Ruth, start to be a tool that God uses in rest restoring Naomi. Because if you guys remember, Naomi shows back up, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's Naomi, she's back. And she's like, call me Mara, right? Because she's bitter. She's like, I'm not excited about this. I'm bitter. The Lord took everything from me. 
And we watched this story over four chapters, right? We watched how God took and used godly people like Boaz, right? How, how Boaz lived his life in wisdom and worship. And we watched how Boaz responded to Ruth, cared for Ruth, and then ultimately went to bat and then redeemed Ruth, which then redeemed Naomi. So we watched God restore and bring redemption through godly people. We also watched how a new believer in Ruth, right? Just, I'm going to follow you wherever you're going. She's new to this whole uh, worshiping God thing, and yet she continues to step out in faith that God's going to provide through the law, right? Because the law was set in motion in Israel for those who were widows would have a covering. There would be a way for redemption for them. God had created in his law, his righteousness, his redemption. He had written it into the civil law. It's one thing we kind of miss with the law. A lot of times we just feel this is like a do this, don't do that, but we don't realize that God's righteousness is poured into the law. We can see God's righteousness through the rules that he said, and this is one of those things. He said, restore the widow. And so we see Ruth just kind of leaning into that and saying, okay, if this is what God's going to do to restore, then I'm going to follow into it. So we watch Naomi's heart start to soften through even the, the, just the young faith of a new believer. We saw the community around them bring this redemption to light, right? Last week, as Pastor Jeff was up here, we get to this end where, where Boaz has gone to the gate, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem Ruth and Naomi, and then he does it, and then it says he, he knows Ruth, and they have a son. His son's name is Obed, and then you have this scene where Naomi, right at the end of chapter one, was bitter, told everybody, call me Mara, but then at the end of chapter four, we have this scene where Ruth has this baby, and the women of the town call him blessed, right? She's like, you've been restored, you've been redeemed, and this baby will nourish you. And so we see this restoration being brought to light within the community. This, this community of women have gathered around her. They actually gathered around Naomi at the beginning, didn't they? She showed up, and they're like, Naomi's back. The community comes, and she's like, get away from me. But the community didn't leave, right? The community responded, the righteousness of Boaz, the faith of Ruth. We get to this point, and here comes the community together, and they start to just proclaim of this thing. And we even saw how God took the selfish and sinful acts of the Redeemer nearer and use that as a means of restoration. There's a note in that. If you haven't written that note down, his name is not named. His whole reason for not redeeming Ruth and Naomi was that he was afraid of what would happen to his inheritance. And so he doesn't even get his name mentioned. But we see God even using this act of this selfish person to bring about this restoration of uh, Ruth through Boaz. So I'm going to give you the last bit of chapters out of Ruth. So just listen to this. Ruth chapter 4. This is how it ended. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be your restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so we see this. I just love how this ends, right? 
love this story. This woman who was once bitter, right? Now, when we think of a nurse, we don't like the mean nurses, right? We like the ones that are like, how are you feeling today? Right? So for me, this is, the, this is kind of the, the picture I see here, right? This, this woman who, who months ago, coming back, blamed God for all that had gone wrong in her life. Everything she says, I have nothing. I left full. I came back empty. And yet, God working sovereignly through everything that happens in this story brings her to this place where now she gets handed this baby and it lays her on her lap and she becomes the nurse. And the people say, that, that he will be a nourisher in her old age. We find out his name is Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Great King David, the, 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 the one who from the point of King David's birth all the way until Jesus, King David will be one of the most renowned people in Israel's history. Everybody will love King David. Everybody will be um, uh, compared to King David. King David will be the guy. And it came through Ruth, the Moabite. Through a bitter and angry Naomi. Because God was sovereignly working through his people. His law functioned correctly. The people, the the nation responded and his righteousness was lived out through the people. And they bring about this restoration. And here's the great thing about this, right? This is a phenomenal story about a woman named Ruth and a woman named Naomi. But it's a grander story, right? Pastor Jeff talked about that. This is a grander story. This is, the, this is the, the grander story. It says a son will be born, right? A son who would be a restorer. And what did we just celebrate six days ago? But the birth of Christ, right? The grander story that, I love this. Obed, have you ever heard of what a type is, when someone's a type of Christ? It's when something happens or somebody does something in a small fashion that Christ will do in a grand fashion, right? So Obed, in the story of Ruth, becomes a type of redeemer or restorer as Christ will be the grander. And then his grandson, King David, will become a type of king, a type showing that Christ would be a grander king. So from this humble woman of Ruth, and this bitter place of Naomi, we see this grander story. See, there would be a child born that would redeem. There would be a child born that would restore. But it would be a restoration that lasts eternally. It would be a redemption that is not just simply for this life, but for all eternal life. It would be redeemed all across everything whole. And that's what we celebrated just six days ago, right? That we got to cast forward, right? That was the best part about Ruth, I think, is as we were looking at Christmas, is Ruth was pointing us forward to the one to come. Here we are six days later, and the one has come, right? And now what do we do? Now what do we do? We're going to turn, we're going to look, and that's what I want to kind of focus on. So if you guys are in the book of Matthew chapter 1, here's a cool thing. Ruth ends with genealogy, and Matthew starts with it. So I'm going to read the genealogy from Ruth, you guys are going to watch the genealogy in Matthew. Cool? Sweet. So here we go. Ruth 4, 18. This is going to be Matthew 1, about 3. Now one thing to notice as I'm reading this, okay? Matthew's going to name three women. He's going to name three women, whereas Ruth doesn't. Here we go. Ruth 4, 18 says, 
Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Real quick, did you guys pick up the three ladies? We have Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. So if you don't know the stories, let me just kind of give you a summary. Uh, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law whose husband died and whose husband's brother would not redeem her. So she went about her own ways to get redemption and therefore have Perez, right? So we have one woman who was cast aside. One woman who was decided, I'm not going to redeem. She was cast aside, and yet she gets used to be the one that brings about the birth of Christ. Then we have the next one of Rahab. You guys know the story of Rahab? So Joshua's coming into Jericho. He's going to tear down Jericho. He sends in spies. The spies are there to figure out what's going on. Rahab hides the spies, then sneaks them out so that God can come crush Jericho, a prostitute. We have a prostitute. Now, here's the best part. Did you catch who is her son? Boaz. Boaz, the redeemer of Ruth, is the son of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Mm, Good stuff, right? And then Ruth, we know Ruth, right? The Moabite. We should be quite familiar uh, with her. One who was far off from the people of God. So we have one who was cast aside, one with a, a past that is a little sketchy, right? And then one who's got nothing to do with God and probably shouldn't have been brought into, and yet all three of them are brought in, and they're the only three named throughout this whole part of this genealogy. Now, Matthew will continue on, and he will give us two more ladies, two more ladies' names. If you, I'm just going to give them to you. One of them is Bathsheba, and the next one, of course, is Mary, mother of Jesus. Now, Bathsheba, if you guys don't know the story of Bathsheba, King David's fall happens because of Bathsheba, and she's actually not named. She's the, the wife of Uriah. Kind of put that in there. But we see that God has been working out this restoration using everybody. So what does that, what does that tell us from the, at, the, at the, the bare bones level of the gospel is that the gospel is for everyone. The, the gospel is not picking and choosing. The gospel is not looking for the best. The gospel is not looking for the one who's got the pedigree. Now, there is pedigree in the gospel, There are many families, many families with generations of faithful following and parents leading their kids faithfully, constantly, beautiful. And then there's those who are so far off, living lives so depraved, and yet the gospel brings them in to see about this redemption. This is what I love about the Bible, right? The Bible is the gospel story just told over and over and over again, time and time again. It's just happening constantly, all these different things. It's the story being painted with this beautiful tapestry, right? A tapestry of God's sovereign working in time across thousands of years, thousands of years through a variety of people from a diverse background, all bringing us to what we celebrated six days ago, the birth of a son that would redeem the heart of the gospel. So as we walk away from Ruth, right, and we see this genealogy, we can see the genealogy comes from Judah, right? Well, that's what Matthew starts with. Judah then had Perez and so on and so forth, right? We see Ruth kind of catch us right in the middle of that, letting us know that, that Ruth in, in this 
this humble Ruth. And Boaz, the son of a prostitute, mind you, happened to be how Ruth gets redeemed. And then we can see all the way through, we get to Matthew chapter 1, and we meet the son, the one who would be born, the one who would restore, the grander story. So before we walk away from this, before we start to look at the uh, great, the, the great com, uh, commission and what we're supposed to do with that and what we look like and how this is going to bridge us over to the book of Acts, I think we have to stop and we have to just consider what the joy was in Bethlehem when Obed was born. Just, just imagine. Cities are small then, right? Like, like they, they, were, they were small cities. Lots of times they were just clan families together. So there's probably not a whole lot of secrets happening. When, when Naomi came back, everybody knew. Everybody knew Ruth was going into Boaz's field. Everybody knew that Boaz went to the gate to redeem. Everybody knows what's going on. And then here it has this moment, and we have this, this celebration that it's there, this, this, this overwhelming celebration. If we read Luke chapter 2, right, when the, when the angels come to the shepherds, it says, I bring you good, no- good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We cannot lose the excitement of the gospel. That's how we become mute in our ministry. That's how the Great Commission becomes just what we do on Sunday morning. So we can't even look at the Great Commission. We can't even look at what we are to do as a church if we ever walk away from the pure excitement that is the gospel. I love how Pastor Jeff is constantly reminding us we never leave the gospel. The gospel doesn't save us, and then we walk away from it, and we learn how to be moral people. That's not the way this works. Christianity isn't about morality. Christianity is about God's righteousness living in us. So we're going to look at the book of Acts. We're going to look at all of these things we should be doing, how we should be a church. I'm going to talk about the Great Commission or about how we're supposed to go out to the ends of the world and share this gospel, but we cannot do it if we've walked away from it. Amen? We have to sit in this. We have to recognize the excitement that was the son is born. A redeemer is here. A son is born. Cool. Matthew, flip all the way to the end. Chapter 28. <clears throat> Promise I won't make you flip too much. Starting in verse 16 in Matthew 28. I should probably flip there too so I can actually read it. says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee on the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Okay, let's pause right here because we're going to set up our setting. We're going to get ourselves set up in this setting. Verse 16 tells us that the the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So timeline-wise, as far as Christ's life is, right? Let's go through the book of Matthew. We know that Christ is born. He's grown and he's performed his three years of ministry. He's lived a life without sin. That's where we are as far as what Christ has done. Christ has been betrayed. He's already been arrested. He's already been beaten and mocked. Christ has already marched his way to the cross. Christ has been crucified with thieves on his side, has been buried into a tomb, and the disciples have all scattered. That's where we are in our story. That's exactly where we are 
in our story. If you flip back just two chapters to Matthew 26, 30, we get a little insight onto what's going on here. Matthew 26, verse 30 to 35, this is what Matthew records. He says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I mean, this is right after the, 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 the Last Supper, guys, right after communion. It says, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Real quick, that last little bit, guys, we love to look at Peter and be like, knucklehead. But it said all the disciples said the same. Peter was just the guy that said it, and everyone was like, yeah, that's right. Mm. You get it, Peter. That's right. I got your back, Peter. So Jesus has just had this, this, this moment at them at the Last Supper, right? He's laid out communion for them. He's talked about everything that's got to happen. He knows he is just hours away from being betrayed and therefore going and pouring and having the wrath of God poured out on him. He knows all of this. He takes his, his disciples. He goes, and this is where he prays, and we read about him praying. He's so torn that he sweats blood, right? He's so anxious over what's to come. He sweats blood. In the middle of this, he looks at his disciples and he says, I know you're going to fall away. I don't know what he didn't say. Don't you dare fall away. No, no, he said, I know you're going to. And after, after you fall away, I need you to meet me in Galilee. Peter's like, no, that'll never happen. Never! We know that happened, right? The great story of the rooster crowing three times, and that third time, Peter realizing that he's done exactly what Christ did. Now, the mark in chapter 14 actually talks about when Jesus gets arrested, and it says that they all ran. It actually actually says one of them got grabbed, and he ran out of his clothes. He was like, I'm so not getting caught, I'm running away naked. That's the scene, guys. That's what has happened, is, is the disciples did exactly as Christ said they were going to do. They've all scattered. So sit for a moment. Put yourself in the mindset of these disciples. They've just spent the last three years following this man, watching him perform miracle after miracle, him talking about things that they can't even fathom, right? The amount of times Jesus says, how long will you be with me before you get it? He literally has to say that to him numerous times. So we have these, these 11 guys, right? They just watched one of their 12, right? They just watched one of the 12 kiss Jesus and betray him. And they just ran off. So here's where they're at, right? They're probably bearing just all this shame, right? Like, man, I, I really thought I was going to be there. Right? I, thought, I thought I was going to be able to stand up for, for my friend, and instead I, I ran away naked. Then they have to think this, right? Like, if, if Judas betrayed him, why not me? Like, maybe I'm the next one on the cross. Maybe they're going to come after me. What should I do? Well, then you have the fact that all of these guys walked away from livelihood, walked away from businesses, walked away from family. So now they're like, I don't know where to go. 
they might be after me, and I just betrayed my best friend. This is the mindset of the 11. And they sit there for three days at least. Right? Because Christ will be in the tomb for three days. So for three days at least, these 11 men are stuck here. We actually read about Peter saying he's going to go fishing. Some people think that's Peter just trying to get away. Others think that's Peter just saying, well, I guess I'm going back to what I do normally. We don't know. Not saying one way or the other. What I'm saying is these men had no idea what to do with themselves. No idea what to do. And the best part is Christ says, I know this is going to happen. And after it's done, meet me in Galilee. It says they all fell away, all scattered. None of them knew what to do. But then Matthew says, back in verse 28, or chapter 28, it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, Luke will record that Jesus appeared to his disciples for roughly 40 days. So he had him go into the tomb. He's in the tomb for three days. And then for 40 days from that point on until he ascends, Christ is showing himself to his disciples. Sometimes we see it where, you know, right out of the gate, we read about the Marys coming to the tomb. He shows himself to the Marys, tells the Marys to tell his disciples. We have uh, where there's our disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and he shows up to them. And then we have a couple stories where he shows up in rooms and he's talking to them. What we don't know is exactly where in the timeline perhaps this one moment's going to happen. Mark makes it sound like it right away, and Luke actually foregoes it. Luke doesn't even really tell it in his gospel. He waits to say it in Acts, so we'll, we'll jump in there in a minute. John doesn't talk about the Great Commission at all, actually. He, he leans into the restoration of Peter. He leans into the restoration of Peter and then the call of Peter and where, where Peter will go. Matthew just kind of leaves us with this this open-ended. It says, now the 11 disciples went to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So here we are. Let's, let's say we're at the end of 40 days, right? There's nothing wrong with us saying this is going to be the last moment. I think Luke kind of writes it that way in Acts. So we're going to hang out there. 40 days. There has been stories of Christ showing up to his disciples in different ways for 40 days. And so they all decide, okay, we're going to go to Galilee where Christ has told us to be, what he told us to do back two chapters ago, right? We're going to jump in there. We're going to go there. So they get there, and it says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I want to be really honest with you guys because I feel it's safe. You guys aren't going to judge me, right? I really want to feel like I'd be the guy that just straight up worshiped. I really do. But I think... If I'm honest, I might be like, well, I don't know, man. Right? Because let's, let's, let's remember the setting, okay? Now, for us to see somebody who maybe has a heart attack, right, and, and, they, and they flatline and then they come back to life, right, that's, that's a miracle on its own, right? Now, to imagine somebody flatlined for three days and then came back, that would be an even grander miracle, right? But see... Jesus didn't just have like a heart attack. Jesus was beaten, right? In Isaiah, it says we wouldn't even be able to recognize him. So his body is mangled. So if we were to see a mangled body, 
pass away, be buried, and then to see a mangled body not be dead anymore, there's a lot that has to happen to make that work, right? So you can just imagine being one of these 11 and being like, ah, Jesus, but really, but really, I don't know, right? But here's what I, here's what I love about the gospel, right? Because one thing, now this is an assumption of mine, just based on how I'm reading it, it says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. But it didn't say they didn't worship, right? So, so perhaps there was a few men there that were like, oh man, Jesus, if it's you, right? Right? Like there's this like, I don't know, right? Paul actually talks about us working out our, our own salvation with fear and trembling, right? This, this working out. This is one of those moments, right? And now how does Jesus respond to that is going to be the key, right? But you have some that worship and you had some that doubted. So how is Jesus going to respond? Well, there's the famous story of Doubting Thomas. You guys know, you guys heard of Doubting Thomas? So we're going to read about Doubting Thomas in John 20. I don't know if Thomas is the one that Matthew's talking about, if there was more, right? Just like we look at Peter like knucklehead, only all of them said it. There's a good chance that Thomas wasn't the only one doubting. He was just the one with the guts to say it, right? So this is what happens in John chapter 20. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Love the boldness in that. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see in my hand, and put, it, put your hand in my, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen, and, or have not seen, and yet believed. So here's what I want to say. Jesus had every, every right to go, Really? Right? Or it could have been that, uh, sorry, you didn't believe. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. But that's not actually what happens, right? Rather, Jesus reveals himself in a way so that Thomas can believe, and then he teaches on faith. The mercy and grace of God just played out in Jesus here. He spent three years with these guys. They saw him go to the cross. Here he is again. He's standing before him, and Thomas is like, well, I just, can I put my hand in the hole? And what we see Jesus do, rather than respond in this pushback or rebuke, we see him graciously and mercifully bring him into faith, giving him so he can see and so that they can go. So just a beautiful picture of the grace and mercy. So we jump back into Matthew um, 28, verse 18. So we got the scene, right? They've all dispersed. They've come back. Here comes Jesus. They're worshiping. Some of them are a little apprehensive. They don't know if somebody's trying to get one over on them, if someone's trying to make their way. What's happening here? And it says, And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's what I want to focus on, okay? Jesus, for 40 days, has been showing himself to his disciples. For 40 days. 
Again, we're going to consider this moment to be that last moment. Who's there but all of them? So first thing we have to recognize when it comes to the Great Commission, the Great Commission was given to the church grand, not to the Christian solo. Am I making sense? Now, it is 100% the responsibility of every Christian, but it is not to be done on their own. It's to be done in the context of church, that we're to do this together, that we, just as in Ruth, right, just as in Ruth, how the community came around living in the righteousness, the righteous law of God, redeemed Ruth, that we are to live in the righteousness of Christ as a family of families and a church that we would be the testimony to everyone outside. Make sense? So the Great Commission, before we talk about what it actually is supposed to be, what we're supposed to do in it, we have to see we are to do it as the church. And that's what I want to hang our hat on today. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them all that I have observed. Luke, in Acts 1, he gets a little bit uh, more focused command from Jesus now, again, we don't know that this is the exact same thing. Jesus could have said this after, okay? just want to say that. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons, and the Father is fixed with his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've been to church long enough, you've probably heard how uh, that is a, that is a, preach the gospel at home, preach the gospel to friends and family, preach the gospel to the world, right? That, fair enough? Because that's what's happening. Jerusalem's the center hub of all worship within Israel. Judea and Samaria are their cousins, and then all the ends of the earth. So we need to focus home first, then go out to the next level, find our friends and family, and then once we've done that, then we go out into the, to the grand world. And uh, I don't want to take any fire from Acts, so I'm going to stop there. But the Great Commission, oftentimes we read this, and it becomes, how are we taking the gospel forward? How am I, John, taking the gospel into my home? How am I, John, taking the gospel into my friends and family? How am I, John, taking the gospel outside into the grand world, right? A lot of times we view that. What I want to do is focus today that though the gospel saves us as individuals, it then makes us co-heirs and family, and so we are to do this commission together, right? We're to do this together. So here's where all the stuff Jeff already stole all my thunder. 2023, four generations. So real quick, we have leaned hard this last year into what the church is to be. You guys have probably heard uh, as we talked about growing our members, right? And we talked about what it is to be a member in the church, what it is to have relationship together, to live life, what it looks like to be an actual family of families, the responsibility we have to each other, right? It's not just that, that we have responsibility to the leadership or the leadership to us, but we together have responsibility together to live life, to do things together so we have focused in 2023, just a couple of things that we focused on. One of them was leadership, building what it looks like to be a deacon and building what it looks like to be an elder and guarding those positions, finding 
people that can come in there and grow that, that, that the elders would be able to focus on spiritual things and that the deacons would be able to care for the actual physical needs of the church. We've really leaned into that, the role of member. If anybody's taken any of the member classes, you know we've taken that and we've viewed that Scripture is calling us to a grand thing. This great commission is not for us single, but us whole. We're to do this together. So we've really talked about. If you guys remember our, our study through 1 Corinthians, what was what we were talking about? But unity and purity, right? We're to be a church united and a church united in purity, right? Unity and purity, living life. I loved when, when Jeff said, when we don't come to church, we are not valuing someone else. That one hit hardest for me. I've never viewed my presence at church being a blessing or a hindrance to somebody else. Nor have I viewed, oh, somebody's just there, even if we're on the opposite sides, that there's some sort of a blessing to me, right? Like, I, I, I just never viewed it that way. But 2023 was a year that we really, really dug in and said, what does it look like to be genuinely family of families? We were striving to build that culture of unity and purity. And then it talks about how we as a church are pouring into the home, right? We talked a lot about families and pouring into families. Our kids are here because it matters. Like having the kids in here is, is not a decision made out of whim. It's a decision made out of a lot of toil and a lot of prayer and recognizing that there's a lot that's caught. More is caught than taught usually, especially with our kids. So having our kids get to worship Jesus alongside us is big. It's a proclamation to say, hey, you're as important as everyone else in this building. You are just as important. You are just as viable. One thing I love to tell kids is Jesus is for you, not because of your mom and dad. Your name is written, not son of, that they need to be here just as much. So we've really leaned in and trying to cultivate this, this culture that says, no, it doesn't matter how old you are. You are a viable member of the family. And you worship Jesus. We worship Jesus together. We've started our Wednesday nights together, right? Summer was chaos. If you guys came, it was a ton of fun, a little chaotic. Some folks left twitching. But we had a plan for that, guys. You know what that plan was? That plan was to start to create relationships cross-generationally. Because there is a lot of benefit in our kids having peer friends. And there's a lot benefit about our kids having mentor friends. And here's what we do a lot of times. We glorify the peer friends. And we do nothing about the mentor friends. Right? Let me tell you something. Real secret about kids. It's really easy to get them to be friends. Put them in the same room. Put them in the same room with a ball. Put them in the same room with crayons. Put them on the playground. It doesn't take much for kids to create relationships with kids. You know what takes a lot of work? It's kids making relationships with adults. And so what we've done Wednesday nights is cultivate that. We have a meal together. We, just, we studied our catechisms. We played a bunch of games during the summer. And if you haven't been to a Wednesday night, you are missing out because there will be any variation of two to ten kids in the front row worshiping. And then when it's time for small groups, they start to get their own Bibles and, and want to start having this conversation because it matters now. They're part of the family. They know it's safe. They can ask questions. They can work out this, what it is to be a Christian. So we've leaned heavy into Wednesday nights. And now we're just talking about, what are we starting but next Sunday, but a Sunday school, right? Where we can 
come together and be a little bit more intimate, more, more focused, so we can actually ask the questions, right? Because there's a good chance that anybody that's up here in the pulpit is saying something, and you're like, wait, I didn't catch that. But there's no opportunity for a back and forth, right? There's no opportunity for questions and answers, so we're doing a Sunday school, a place where we can start sharpening those swords together, where we can work those things out together, where our preteens and our teenagers can be there together as well so that they can answer the questions when their friends ask them. We love to say that our kids are on mission in the world, but a lot of times we aren't doing anything to equip them. We just assume that because they go to church, they're going to be missionaries in the field. That's not the way this works. So we're here to say, this is how we're going to pour into the family. And here's why we need to pour into the family first. We can have an amazing event that brings all of the neighborhood kids in here, but if we aren't ready to receive them, then we've done nothing. We've brought them into nothing. 2023 was about us focusing on how we can be in the home so that we can have events. Let me tell you something. Summer games, when it kicks off again, there is no safer place for you to invite a friend. We're going to eat donuts tied to a string on our foot. (laughs) And you know what? And you know what? We're going to memorize something, and we're going to talk about Jesus. It's going to be a little 10-minute devotional, but you know what's going to happen? Over the three months that you invite your friends, they've made friends. That circle of influence has grown so that when we kick back into gear and we get back in here on worship and we get back here doing small groups, there's now relationships made. So having a great event that brings a lot of people one time a year, cool. And we'll do those. I promise you guys, we will do those. But having a point where we can bring them in, cultivate relationships, connect with them, show them that we are a family of families and that we do care for them. 2023 was all about preparing that machine. And I feel like we've done it. I mean, we've got a lot to go. Don't think we're like there, please. But there is a lot of kids that have got relationship with adults that didn't a year ago. And that's because we've created this culture that says we are 100% together. So as we kick off Sunday school, by the way, my class is the best, just so you know. It's going to be the best. You guys want to Sign up right now. I'll give you a couple. No? Okay, cool. So it was our Wednesday nights kick into the summer, right? It's a great opportunity to invite that grander group, the friends, the families, the neighbors, right? We're going to do some events. We have a youth camp coming off in the summer. We're going to take a bunch, a group of our, our kids up to camp because kids need to have fun too. So we're going to go to camp, and guess what? It costs money. We're going to have some fundraisers. Now, I don't want to steal anything, but my wife makes amazing fundraisers, and there's a goal to them. One, fundraise. <laughs> two, It's a great opportunity because you can get a lot of people who don't love Jesus to come and support their niece, nephew, friend, kid. And guess what happens? You get a whole lot of non-believers inside the church. And then we're prepared to show them we care. Make sense? You see how this works? That's why we started home. We got this. We got this mentality. Someone knew. Hey, how are you? Have you met Jesus? Oh, you do? Good. Good. Sweet. Cool. Oh, you don't know Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. I took the Sunday school class. I know how to do it now. Yeah, see, you guys are finding the yeah, the machines are running. And here's one thing that Generations has always been really good about, right? It's being kingdom-minded, meaning it's not about growing generations. Now, we want to grow generations. One, because we're better together. We're better. The more of us together, the more skill set we have together, we are just better together, right? But we also understand the gospel is to go out. And so we partner with a lot of ministries in different zip codes. 
Could that be a church plant? Could that be an actual event? Could it be a pastor? We, we do a lot of things where we are reaching out, right? What are we starting in two days? A preschool. Not a single family in that preschool calls this place home. I mean, maybe they never do, and that's fine. You know what we're going to do? We're going to be a place where their kids are safe and they hear about Jesus. That's what we're going to do. Grander vision. Going out. The Great Commission. So let me read this commission one more time for you guys. As Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Saints of the Most High, that's you. The Most High God. We are the saints of the Most High God. I know there's no better title out there. So next week, we're going to start looking at what it looked like to build God's church, right? The working out of this great commission, going in the grand view of the, the family of families. So my hope is this morning that we might have a chance to sit and ponder in that commission for the next seven days. To sit and ponder, remember the joy, the excitement in it. So we might prepare ourselves as we look at the book of Acts, not as a list of things to do or not do, or things that we should be, but as an exciting plan to see redemption and restoration. Look forward to how we might look th live this out in 2024. So before I give you guys a little bit of time for uh, your takeaways, here's, 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 here's myself. I need to treat the Great Commission as a corporate command more than a personal one. I think just naturally we like to just, this is my walk, this is what I'm doing. And so for me, even as a pastor, even putting together uh, ministries and even knowing like our vision is to create this unity within the church, I still often find myself, what am I supposed to be doing? And I lose sight of the grand vision. So for me, leading into 2024, I want to be very mindful of this corporate command of the Great Commission. For all of our seasoned Christians, here's my question, is how can you, in 2024, be that catalyst, right, or that sage older brother or sister in the Lord and help us to be living more fully the gospel? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've got life experience on how to live the gospel out. How can you share that in 2024? Is it coming Wednesday nights and sharing in a small group? Is it coming to Sunday mornings and, and having the, the class and the discussions that we'll be teaching these different things? Is it living life in a way where we're just a little bit more pointed in what we do? What are you going to do in 2024 that you might lead us there? For all of our new Christians, lean into the gospel in 2024. Don't feel like you have to walk away from it. There's no pressure to walk away. In fact, you need to lean in. The world will want you to walk away. The enemy will want you to find morality. Don't follow, but hold fast to the gospel. Work it out. Live life. Find where you can grow. Find where you can connect and find where you can serve here. Where can you find a place to come and call this home and see this great commission being worked out? For those who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be that day. That today would be the day that your faith is found. For a son is born, his name is Christ, he was born, he lived, he died, that we might be saved and so restored. That he's out working redemption now. He says he's making a room for those and he will bring us back. He's the only way to find wholeness, 
So would you repent and find Christ today? And if you need to talk, find me. Kids and parents, mom and dad, how can you cultivate in your kids a sense of belonging to the church of God? How can you cultivate that they are not just, just members of, their, of your family, but members of this corporate body, that we are brothers and sisters with them, that they're needed here, they have a place at this table. Honestly, every one of us crotchety old folk need the faith of Ruth. There's no greater picture of that, right? Mara, and then here comes this new faith of Ruth, and it's just wore down this bitterness. We need it. We need the kids together. We need them here. We need to watch them worship. We need to hear them talk about Jesus. Our spirit needs it. Our heart needs it. So how is you, as a family, can you come in and live out this great commission here at church? How can you connect your kids here at church? Cool? Let me pray for us, and uh, we will we'll break up. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for uh, even though the timer's way red, Pray that it was edifying and glorifying to the name of Christ. This great commission, Father, we're commanded and we're called to go out and do and be for the sake of the gospel. So, Lord, would you just bless our time, bless our conversations, and uh, encourage in us to step out in 2024. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Two, three, five, ten. What's that? Cool. Takeaways. So what we're going to do for takeaways, it's pretty much what amazing thing, what tweetable thing did I say? No, I'm just kidding. That's not what it is at all. So God reveals things to us, right? It says that the Holy Spirit illuminates. Actually, when the disciples are with Jesus, it says the Spirit came upon them and then they were able to see. So that's what we're, we know that's what happens in church every Sunday, is God's Word is talked and taught and the Holy Spirit illuminates. And so part of that living out the gospel and living together is sharing that. The Bible calls that iron sharpening iron. So we just take like two to five minutes to just kind of turn within the groups with you, with your family, and just share, hey, I, I never thought of this of the, of, of the Great Commission. Or, man, this was amazing to think about Boaz. Or just something that God has kind of revealed to you this morning, and just share it with your neighbor, hear what your neighbor heard, and just, just edify and glorify the name of Christ as we worked up. Make sense?